You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. This is an exciting day as we are beginning a new sermon series through the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And uh, this is exciting in particular because we have come through recently a couple of pretty difficult books of the Bible as we tend to preach verse by verse through those books with an occasional break in the summer and the winter for covering some topic in our preaching that the pastors may feel the church is in particular need of. Amos and Revelation were two difficult books of the Bible uh, for us to preach through and certainly uh, difficult for us to wrestle with as a church. But having come through those, now we have this opportunity to move into a new book of the Bible, the book of Philippians. So let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 1, as we'll be considering this morning just verses 1 and 2. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I also think anytime we start a new book of the Bible, it's a good occasion just to remind ourselves that sometimes the books of the Bible are hard to find. When I was a young Christian, I felt, this probably says something about my pride that I still carry today, I felt a lot of self-consciousness about how quickly I could find or how slowly I would find books of the Bible And I didn't want anybody to know that I didn't know their order. And so I was never humble enough just to flip back to the very beginning of my Bible, to the table of contents, to find whatever little book the pastor was preaching on. Instead, I would do that thing where I would flip through, flip through, flip through. And then when I realized I passed it, I would act like that was a mistake and go, oh, 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 oh. And then I would flip through again until I finally found it. I hope that's not something that you do. You have no need to do that. You should look back at the table of contents if you're unsure of where to find a book of the Bible. This morning, the book of Philippians, of course, if you look at the table of contents, is the 11th book in the New Testament. So if you find your way to Matthew about near the beginning of the, or at the beginning of the New Testament, you can then work your way to Philippians. Uh, Also as a new Christian, I remember, and it may say something about my IQ today, that I often do find myself saying General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, just to remember the order of just those four. That's another way that you can remember it if you're trying to find this book. Well, I hope that you found it as we begin this sermon series uh, today called Connoisseurs of Happiness. That's what we've entitled this preaching series, and I'm very much looking forward to this because I'm anticipating and praying that God will really encourage our hearts and magnify our delight in Him and increase our joy even in the midst of hard times. And so I want to begin with a question for you to consider with me. Are you a connoisseur of anything? Uh, That question has been on my mind for a few months now as I have been thinking about that in my own life. I have asked other people uh, along the way, riding in the car or, or just sitting at lunch, are you a connoisseur of anything? Many of the people that I have talked to and even as I reflect on my own life have doubts about whether they have really found anything to be a connoisseur of. I mean, the closest maybe that I could get in my life would be something simple and probably relatively meaningless like basketball. I, I really love basketball. I always have and have, have really wanted to know and understand the game and to be able to, to, to watch it and see how it works. But that's about the only thing I can think of that I have been a connoisseur of. Are you a connoisseur of anything? 
Those connoisseurs out in the world that we know of are usually connoisseurs of something, something delightful, something like a particular food or a particular drink. I have friends who are connoisseurs of, of, of bourbon or food from a certain part of the world or, or cooking or, or Renaissance art, those kinds of things. Now, that word connoisseur actually comes from the French word to know. That helps us to not only learn how to spell it, we need to learn how to spell it. It's a hard word to spell. You can see it on the screen, but also to understand what it means. It means to really know something. It's to know the inner workings of it. You may think of someone who is a connoisseur, maybe even of uh, luxury timepieces. That's a person who would know everything about the history of, of his or her watches, of, of their inner workings, perhaps could even take it apart and put it back together again. That is what we mean when we ask the question, am I a connoisseur? Is there something in your life that you really know, you really understand? And the more that you know about it, the more delight that you take in it. Well, regardless of you, whether you have found something in just normal everyday life to be a connoisseur of, I cannot think of anything better than for us as a church to grow and become connoisseurs of the happiness and joy that we can have in Christ. And that's what we want to do through this epistle by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, which is often referred to as the epistle of joy. This letter is called the Epistle of Joy because the central theme is just that, joy in Christ in the midst even of trials. As we work our way uh, piece by piece through this letter of the Apostle Paul, we'll find that he uses Greek words for joy and rejoicing 16 times in a letter that only has 104 verses you know, conversational speed, uh, speed of speech and conversation is about 150 words per minute. That would be like having a conversation with someone like the Apostle Paul, and he uses words for joy or rejoicing or happiness or blessing more than once every minute. Can you imagine having a conversation? You may have had conversations with people about the thing that they are coming to know and love. You talk to someone who has a new boyfriend or girlfriend, and that is the constant refrain. That person's name comes up over and over again. Or you find someone who has a a real enjoyment or has become a connoisseur of, of something in life, and that seems to be all that they talk about. Well, in this letter, the Apostle Paul constantly talks about joy, even in the midst of his trials. As we work our way through, we'll find places like these in Philippians 2, where he says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Joy, joy, rejoice, joy, joy, rejoice, over and over again. Philippians 3, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Philippians 4, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, 
Stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So as we work our way through the epistle of, to the Philippians, this epistle of joy, we want to squeeze all of the joy or happiness that we can out of this book from the example of the Apostle Paul and all that he teaches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what it means to be happy in Christ. That we might become so familiar with the joy and rejoicing that can be ours in the gospel that we would rightly be called connoisseurs of happiness. I cannot think of anything better for my life and I cannot think of anything better for your life and I can't think of anything better for our church than for us to really know how it works, what it is, where it comes from. And that by understanding all of that and by being people who delight in delighting in Christ, that we would would be encouraged, that we would be emboldened, that we would be useful to the Lord unlike we may have been in the past. What we want to see this morning is that the foundation of such joy is the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, this morning, we are looking at the foundation of Christian happiness, jumping right into this topic by seeing it in three ways. Here's the first. We are reminded this morning by the Apostle Paul and Timothy, who was with him when he wrote this letter, that the anointed Redeemer leads cheerful bondservants. The anointed Redeemer leads cheerful bondservants. Even just looking at the first part of verse 1, we capture some important truth about the Apostle Paul, his life and outlook on the world, the way that he sees himself, and the way that he desires for us to see ourselves. Notice first in this point that we are dealing with an anointed redeemer who is the foundation of all of the joy that Paul will talk about in the book of Philippians. The reason that we refer to him in that way as the anointed redeemer is because that is the way that Paul talks about him in this verse. He refers to him over and over again by some variation of Christ Jesus. Those two simply meaning anointed redeemer. That Jesus is the savior of the world who has been anointed or appointed by God the Father to come and live a perfect life in our place to die a sacrificial death in our place, and then on the third day to rise again, triumphant over sin and death, as the captain of joy in himself, gathering all kinds of people around the world into his covenant love, into his kingdom, that they would be satisfied increasingly forevermore. That is who this anointed redeemer is, Jesus of Nazareth, the one in whom we have placed our trust. And if you're here this morning and you have not placed your trust in him, I am begging you, consider Christ. There is no one like him. He is the all-satisfying redeemer of the world. And he stands now in a season of grace welcoming you, no matter who you are, welcoming you with a real welcome to come to him and to know him and to be happy in him. 
Notice that in the first part of verse 1, Paul and Timothy are referred to as bondservants. Here is Timothy with Paul writing to this church in Philippi. Uh, He is writing, Paul is writing uh, likely from a prison here to this place in Rome. He is suffering, yet has in his heart these believers in Philippi where he had planted a church and it seems had gotten to know Timothy and they formed a bond that continued on very similar to father and son, at least spiritually and in ministry, on throughout the rest of their days. And Paul here with Timothy is not ashamed to call himself or call themselves bondservants. Now, Paul uses this phrase a lot in his writing, uh, and sometimes he uses a, a Greek word that is doulos. That is the word that he uses here. Sometimes he uses another word, huperetes. Both of them, though, carry the connotation of being a kind of under rower, a servant of servants, the very lowest of the servants. You may even think of a, of a ship with those who were rowing and pushing the boat forward. They would be in the very bottom of the ship. They are in, in, the, in, the, in the worst of conditions, and yet they are serving with all of their might the most humble place in the hierarchy of value. The Apostle Paul places himself there, willingly, cheerfully calling himself a bond servant, a slave. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Apostle Paul, when writing to Philippi, doesn't do what he does in some of his other letters. He doesn't refer to himself as an apostle. For some reason, perhaps it's because of the warm relationship that he has with these believers, he doesn't feel the need to assert his authority over them, but rather he humbles himself before them, acknowledging that he is a servant of all, in fact, the lowest of servants. Just as the Apostle Paul clearly considered himself to be the chief of sinners, he delighted in being known or seeing himself as the chief of slaves, the chief of servants who found their delight in serving their God. And this stands out to me as an incredible, incredible truth that should not be overlooked, is that Paul and Timothy are cheerful and happy to be known as bondservants. They gladly refer to themselves as those who are bondservants, who are, who are the lowest position, under rowers. This kind of language, it, it is the lowest position. It is a, a, a signal of, of permanent servitude is what a bondservant was, the word that he is using to refer to himself. It is someone who is in submission to the captain, always rowing at the captain's beat, A bondservant is not someone who was on a quest to gather up as much personal honor for himself as he could, but rather he delighted in honoring the captain, the king, ultimately here who is Christ, the anointed redeemer, and finding all of his own honor or happiness in the honor and happiness of the one whom he served. It is an amazing reality to think that the Apostle Paul could see being a bondservant of Jesus as a good thing, as a cheerful thing. How many times have you written a letter? We should say written an email or a text. How many times have you written an email and in your introduction you refer to yourself as a permanent, low position, no honor slave? 
That's just not something that we do. That's not natural to our, our nature. We don't delight in that, that kind of thinking. Can you think of places in the world that it's actually considered to be good and happy to be a bondservant? No one uses that language. No one admits to that, that I'm a bondservant of the government. Nobody goes for that. I'm a bondservant of my neighbor. Nobody's interested in that. I am a cheerful bondservant, the lowest, no honor, permanent servitude slave of my boss at work. No one is interested in that. But there's something different. Something different has happened to the Apostle Paul that has radically transformed his view of himself. That he is willing and cheerful about being known as a bond servant. This is where he gains this joy that we'll be continually reading about even in the midst of hardship. There are amazing accounts of the work of Christian happiness in the life, in the heart, in the soul of the Apostle Paul, all throughout this letter and other places. And we do well to try to grab a hold of that and get our own hearts around it. Here's one account, which is actually from the book of Acts. In Acts 16, you may remember this. It's such a striking picture of someone who is not only at a lowest point of servitude before his king, but someone who is delighting and even singing about his suffering because he knows the one he serves. In Acts 16, verse 22, it says, The crowd joined in an attack against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into, into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This inner prison was at the very center of the jail cell. It was the worst place that you could be. It would be a kind of comparable to solitary confinement today. But yet on top of that, their feet were fastened in the stocks, which was a large piece of wood between their feet, and it would be compressing their feet apart, uh, kind of like a wishbone, imposing great pain on top of the, the beating that they had received. And then it says in verse 25 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were there in the stocks, having received their beating in the inner cell, praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. It's so easy in that account to get caught up in the earthquake and the chains falling off and the doors opening and the release of their captivity. It's also easy to overlook what was going on in their hearts. They are praying and singing even in the midst of their suffering. This is an incredible picture of what it means to be a happy bond servant. We too can be happy bond servants because Jesus becomes our ultimate treasure, the ultimate treasure of our hearts. And therefore he makes us willing to serve him in these incredible ways, all the while maintaining real joy about what we're doing. We have talked about this quite a bit in our church, and it may be pretty familiar to you, but it's always worth the reminder. As we've worked through even recently in our, in our worship services, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, 
and uh, the question and answers that encourage our faith. This is the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I want you to capture capture what is the source of this joy and hope and happiness that we have in Christ because of the ministry that he has done for us. Listen to this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own. This is the language of being a bondservant. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the picture of what Jesus Christ can do in the hearts of people like us. He can so captivate us, and he has such a powerful ministry of grace to us in transforming our hearts and and meeting our needs and uplifting our souls so that we become so satisfied in him that we are ready and willing and cheerful even to suffer for him. It raises that question, though, what is the source of my happiness today? What is the source of my joy? There are all different kinds of pressures upon us. There are all different kinds of of allurements drawing our attention that we might find our hope in them. So as we look at this text and move forward to the next part and the next point, I would just stop for a moment and encourage you to do something this week. Take some time and, and meditate upon this question. What are the top three things that make you happy and why? If you want to try to understand uh, if you're close to being a connoisseur of something, that's the kind of question that you ought to answer. What is it that really makes you happy? Could you make a top three list? This not only will show you the, the direction of your own heart, but it will show you anew some of the ways that God has blessed you the gifts that he has given to you, the kinds of things that he has bestowed upon you that you would delight in him by enjoying them. But what are they? And then from there, we'll be able to, throughout this letter, continue to expand our vision for what it means to find our joy more and more and more in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The anointed redeemer leads cheerful bondservants. We want to be those kinds of servants. And we can only be those kinds of servants because of this ministry that he's doing for us. We've read about it in the Heidelberg Catechism question one, and we continue to read about it here in the next part of our text for this morning. As we see that the anointed redeemer not only leads cheerful bond servants, but does so by watching and serving his saints. Look at the next part of verse 1 where Paul addresses his letter to all the saints in, there it is again, the anointed Redeemer, Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. We see here that those who serve him are not only bond servants externally, but they are servants internally. They are in Christ This is an important theological truth for all of us to embrace in our hearts and to meditate upon and delight in. 
is that Jesus Christ has not simply come to, to hitch us to him, but to take us into himself, to become ultimately at the deepest part of our being, united to him. That's what it means to be in Christ. He is writing to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, currently residing in this province of Rome called Philippi. They are saints. The word that he uses here for saints is the same word for holy. It means pure ones. It means God's people. He is writing to those that he sees as God's holy people who are holy and happy because they are in Christ. They have united with him. They have merged with him. They have become one with him. They have married him. And this is the source of their ultimate joy and satisfaction in life. But we also see here his reference to the overseers and deacons, those two offices or ministries that were going on in the local church. And I think this also is important because it reminds us again of how God ministers to us. How is it that God is working in our lives and in our church for our good and for our joy? These two words, these two offices are not simply things that God set up in the church so that it would function well, but they are set up in the church as a reflection of his cheerful care of us. We see God's overwatch and his ministry in these two offices in the church of Philippi. In fact, every healthy Local church, New Testament church has these two offices of overseers and deacons or pastors, elders, and deacons. We have three pastors in our church. I'm one, Pastor Isaac, Pastor Kevin. We also have nine deacons, James Whitehead, John Vickery, Sherry Bowman, Dave Hall, Dave King, Jack Tapey, Sam Wagers, Court Bowman, Rob Trenopole. We have the same picture there, but what we want to see this morning and to be reminded of is that our happiness is not simply in the functioning of Christian life, but it's in the actual ministry that God is doing in the midst of us through these caring acts. He is overseeing us, leading us, teaching us by his spirit. He is ever watching over us, ever comforting us, ever ministering to us and serving us in these important ways. But also the work of deacons is the work of service, often more to do with the, the, the ministries of our local church or the ministries in our lives. And it again is a reflection of what God is doing in our world. He is orchestrating the circumstances of our lives. He is caring for all of the details and, and caring for us in them. And these are the ways that he brings us joy. He ministers joy by teaching and leading us. And he ministers joy by serving us. That's a difficult concept to get our hearts around. That's been a difficult concept for me to get my heart around. Is that in fact, truly, God serves us. He doesn't do it in a subservient way as though we are above him and he is below us, but rather consistent with everything that it means for Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, to be the servant of the world and giving his life as a ransom for many. He constantly serves us. That is what he's doing. 
He's constantly caring, constantly ministering, constantly thinking of us, watching over us, providing for us. I suppose it's not like caring for a plant in your home. Think about when you care for something in your home, you seek to control all of the details, the environment. You give that plant nourishment. You want to do everything to make the plant flourish because it brings you joy to see it flourishing and alive. It's a very similar dynamic between us and the Lord that he's ever working to cause us spiritually to flourish in him because our flourishing and our satisfaction is what glorifies him. It's what ultimately brings him glory and joy. You notice that again, back in the Heidelberg Catechism, he pays for all our sins, he sets us free, he preserves us, he causes all things to work together for our salvation. He is ever assuring us of eternal life and he's ever working to make us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the ministry that he is doing to you. This is how he is serving you. Friends, how easy is it for us just to be oblivious to that constant work that he's never sleeping, he's never slumbering, he's never stopping, he's always, always working. It's not as though he is the one being served. Perhaps that's why it's hard for us to get our our minds around that and really embrace the fact that he is at work in us and he is ministering to us and serving us because we seem to think that it only works the other way. We serve him. Isn't that, isn't that what bond servants do? Well, yes, sort of. But that, again, is not what we read about in Paul's writing. That's not the way that Paul understood things. Listen to this from Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the one who is giving and giving and giving. And here we are those who are receiving the the fruit of that work. And yes, then giving our lives and serving him in every way that we can, glorifying him. But we're doing it by a recognition of his ultimate ministry to us. He is watching us and he is serving us in ways that will, that will work to magnify our joy in him, our happiness over the coming chapters, even in the midst of suffering. Therefore, what we want to do is be on a pursuit in the coming weeks of this joy. How could we know and understand and taste that the Lord is good? How could we delight even more in the midst of our difficulties, trials, troubles, temptations, How could we delight even more in what he is ever doing for us? We want to take advantage of his cheerful care of our souls. We want to make the most of his ministry to us. To pursue him, our knowledge of him, our love for him, that we would delight in him. Finally, we see that the anointed redeemer, in addition to leading cheerful bondservants and watching and serving uh, his saints, the anointed redeemer delivers grace and peace 
It's an incredible part of just the very beginning of this letter. Such an incredible statement of of, of rich and gospel truth in verse 2. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I suppose it would be easy for someone to look at that and say, well, those are just pleasantries. That's like the same thing as saying, good morning, how are you doing? But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that the Holy Spirit wastes any words. I don't think that the Holy Spirit is interested in mere pleasantries. I think that these words are carefully chosen because they give us a clear picture of our King who has been giving us oversight and service by granting to us what we ultimately need, what we cannot have on our own, and even what in this life our hearts are crying out for as his people, grace and peace. This is more than a greeting. This is a theological statement because grace and peace indicate the kind of lives that we are living. Why does he offer these things to us? It's because these are the things that we need. It's because these are the things that we feel we often lack and are in need of more of. We need grace and peace. Our hearts are wandering. They are running everywhere. They are distracted, focused on on all of the other things that promise to satisfy us or make us happy. And therefore, what do we need? We need grace upon grace. We need peace upon peace. We need God to minister to us in these important ways. We need God to satisfy our souls. And only, only he can. Here Paul says that he wishes grace to them. And peace from God the Father, and there it is again, the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers to them grace, what we have been shown in Christ, and peace, well-being. It's it's the thing that we have. We have spiritual well-being. We have peace with God because of Christ, and that peace continues to, to work in us every day. So why does he offer any person grace and peace? Why does he do that? Why has he offered that to you? Why has he given that to you in Christ? Ultimately, to make us happy. To satisfy our hearts once and for all. Hearts that have been running wild after all of the other things. And he has given us grace and peace to bring us close and to cause us to delight in him and to glorify him in our satisfaction. Therefore, we want to be in this season on a pursuit of better understanding and knowing the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel and the peace that he gives to us in him, of his disposition toward us, his work in us, how we relate to him on a daily basis because of the good news of Jesus Christ and the many promises that he has made to us and is keeping. We have every reason to delight. And we have every reason to pursue him in the delight of knowing him more. This is something that in one way is very unnatural to us. But in another way, it is as though it's hardwired into us. Whether you are a connoisseur or not, 
You are made to be one. It is hardwired into our nature to be what Paul Tripp calls meaning makers. That in everything in life, we are making meaning. And in that meaning, every person who is sitting here today is on that quest to meet the longing of your heart to be satisfied, to be happy, to be joyful. It's the reason for everything that you do. It's the reason for everything that I do. And therefore, in that way, we are all the more encouraged by the way that God has made us to be on this pursuit to really know Him and to delight in Him because in Christ, He delights in us. One of the people in, the, in maybe a modern culture who has highlighted this most recently for us is Marie Kondo. Do you know who this is? This is the tidying lady, right? Um, uh, um, the title of the book is Leaving Me. Um, oh, it's Leaving Me. Yeah, it's about the spark of joy and, uh, and about the, the magic of tidying up, something to that degree, right? That's it. Thank you very much. That was what I was missing. The life-changing magic of tidying up. And it all re- revolves around that concept that, that she is concerned to know what in her life produces joy. And if it doesn't produce joy, then it should be moved away in pursuit of what will bring joy. If that's not a picture of the hardwired desire of every human heart, I don't know what is. And she's been a, somewhat of an everyday example in highlighting this. And it even highlights for us even more why we want to pursue this in Christ, because he's the only one who can provide it. You know, recently she had a third child, I read, and she gave up on tidying, (laughs) which is ironic. That makes sense. But she did not give up on that hardwired desire for joy. She just moved it somewhere else. A question for us this morning is, where have you moved your hardwired desire for joy? You planted it somewhere. You're pursuing it somewhere. Everyone here is doing it. I'm doing it. You're doing it. But where are you pursuing it is the question. We want rather to pursue it in Christ. That's what this whole series is about. That's what this whole letter is about. It's about magnifying the glory of God by maximizing our delight in him. Listen to what Marie Kondo says in her book. She asks this question. What if every decision you made, every goal you set, and every aspect of your life was guided by what sparks joy? You know, as Christians, I would change that a little, and I would ask you this very question as I ask myself. What if? What if every decision you made and every goal you set And every aspect of your life was guided by a pursuit of the happiness that is yours in God's grace. What if? If everything that we did and everything that we thought about and all of our desires and all of our goals and all of our ambitions were wrapped up in becoming connoisseurs, knowers of God's delight in the gospel... How would that change us? I think there is no measure to how it would change us both in our times of prosperity and in our times of suffering and hardship. This, I think, is what we need. To become 
connoisseurs of happiness by delighting in God's favor in Christ. And that's the pursuit that we're going to be on. And even this week in community group, we have an opportunity to begin working practically with these truths so that we might join together and walk in this direction over the coming weeks. I'm praying that God would do a great work in our hearts and lives to satisfy us, to to call many of us, including myself, up and out of our little sphere of, of, of silly happiness in life to something that really makes a difference and really lasts and really satisfies our souls and makes us useful to Him. It would be a beautiful thing for God to do that, and I'm praying that He will over these coming weeks as we walk through this letter together. Well, of course, that begins by placing our trust in Christ. If you're here this morning or watching the live stream, none of us can know this joy or happiness in Christ unless we are in Christ. And that only happens by recognizing our great need and seeing Christ as the anointed Redeemer who has come to save us from our sins and to delight in us and for us and to turn from our sin to Him and to place our trust in Him. If that's you today, I encourage you to place your trust in Jesus today. And then let us know about that so that we can walk with you and care for you and disciple one another, just as I was saying this morning during our announcements. But right now, we're going to ask God to help us, to work in us, and to minister to us in these important ways. Let me invite you to stand as we prepare our hearts to sing yet again, and as we pray, and we ask Him to do this, because it cannot happen unless He works. And so let's pray that He will work in these ways. Our Father, we join our hearts together this morning as we begin a a new journey through the book of Philippians. And God, we recognize, many of us recognize, uh, we all want to recognize our great need for your grace, that our hearts are wandering and wandering until finally we come to rest in you. But even having rested our hearts in you, we need you all the more. We need your grace. We need you to work in us. We are torn by remaining sin in different directions. Our, our focus is divided. Our hearts are, are in pieces. We pray that you would gather us together. Satisfy our souls and give us a vision. Give us a vision of your goodness to us. Give us a vision of your your superiority over all the things in the world that vie for our attention. And we pray that in these coming days that you would become more and more the treasure of our hearts and that we would learn the the delight that it is to delight in you and to know you, to understand you, to understand how you, you work in our hearts. We pray for that wisdom. We pray for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to change us and to strengthen us, to give us a kind of new life, to refresh in us the joy of knowing you, Christ, our anointed Redeemer. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it even as we sing now, minister to our hearts as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.